how do we become intimate with a holy God? You think about the fact that God is holy and nothing that is unholy can touch Him. How do we develop an intimate relation, us being sinners, and we know we're sinners, saved by grace, but still we fall and we stumble and we blow it. We have to apologize. So how do we become intimate with the Holy God? There's a lot of confusion about holiness. I have a book in my library. It's about 900 pages, and it's on the holiness movement. There's a whole movement called the holiness movement. Some people believe and teach that holiness only comes and intimacy with God only comes if you have a second work of grace or a second baptism or a second blessing. And I'm afraid that those terms have confused us and deterred us from finding God rather than encouraging us to seek Him. Because it implies that some people have something of God that other people can't get unless they jump through certain hoops. It implies that the ground is not level at the foot of the cross, that we're not all equal. Now, what it does to us is it says, and it builds pride that says, I have something and you don't. And any time I say to someone, other than sharing the gospel, I have something and you don't, the devil can turn that into pride and arrogance. People ask me sometimes, have you got it? I always wonder what it is. I'm just a little spooky about what it is. Well, I don't know what it is, but I know this. I've got him. I've got Jesus. And because I have Jesus, I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me. Now, they're two distinctively different and yet vitally connected phrases in this New Testament. They're two doctrines that are distinctively different, and yet they are connected. The doctrine of justification and the doctrine of sanctification. And there's a a chart there, should be in your notes, and I just want to go through it for the sake of time. Justification means we have been set free from guilt. Sanctification means we've been set free from the desire, and that word desire is a key word, the desire to sin. Justification happens at spiritual birth. Sanctification is spiritual development and maturity. Justification is an event. Sanctification is a process. Justification, we were sinners. In sanctification, we are now sons. Sanctification, the easiest way for me to explain sanctification is to say this. It is God making you everything He wants you to be so that you become like Jesus. If you want just a layman's average definition, is God making you everything He wants you to be so that you become like Jesus? When I think of sanctification, I think of holiness. Because the Scripture says, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? 
he that has clean hands and a pure heart. Peter says, be holy, for I am holy. Jesus expects us to be holy. Now, he would not expect, expect us to do something that he had not empowered us to do. And it is because of who we are in Christ that we have the power to be what we are supposed to be in Christ. And so tonight, I want to give some pointers, if I could. And before we get there, I, I, want to, I want to make a couple of statements. I think that most people accelerate the process of sanctification at a crisis moment in their life. I think when people are saved after, they're, after the age of being children or teenagers, typically they are saved because of a crisis moment in their life. Something gets their attention. And I think for the Christian who's just floating along and just going through the motions, typically it is a crisis moment. And in that crisis moment, we begin to think, I need to get serious about my relationship with God. Now, that happens in a number of ways. One is we just get sick and tired of the way we are. We get frustrated with religion. We get frustrated with just business as usual. We get frustrated with just going to church. And we say, you know, there's got to be more to life than this. There's got to be more than just playing church. There's got to be more than just playing dress up. There's got to be more to life than what I'm experiencing. I'm hearing about it, but I'm not experiencing it. And so something gets their attention. And they just, all of a sudden they think, I want that. Sometimes it's at a moment when somebody realizes I don't have any more control over my life. I've lost control. By the way, there's so much of our lives we don't have control over. Now, ladies, you have control over the color of your hair. As men, we don't. Now, if we do, people always look at us. You know, he looked a little different last Sunday. You know, he's in the highlights. Okay. <laughs> the point is, is that we reach a point where we die to ourselves. We die to ourselves and we say a prayer that goes something like this. God, I want all that you have for me. I don't want to settle for less than the best. I want all that you have for me. I want everything you've got for me in Christ Jesus. I want to have it all. I want to know the fullness of the walk with God that I read about in the Bible. I want to experience it. So there's some Old Testament pointers to guide us. And these people point the way. They came along before Christ came, and we saw this in fullness, but Abraham is an example. Let me just ask you to write down Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. Genesis 17, 1 says, Now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. There was a crisis moment, a defining moment in Abraham's life when God spoke to him and he identified himself as God Almighty. That word is El Shaddai, the Almighty God. I'm the almighty, all-sufficient God. I'm the enabling God. Now, what was he telling Abraham, who was living in a polytheistic culture? The one true God was saying, Abraham, what I'm about to say to you, walk before me and be blameless. I am sufficient to make that happen in your life. 
The word blameless there means to be perfect and complete. Walk before me and be everything I wanted you to be, Abraham. Walk before me and complete the path that I put you on. Walk before me and finish the course. Jacob, number 2, Genesis chapter 32. You remember Jacob had a wrestling match with God. By the way, don't ever get in a wrestling match with God. There was an old song that used to say, your arms are too short to box with God. And I can tell you, if you're going to get in a wrestling match with God, you're going to get pinned and it's not going to take long. Jacob had a defining moment at Bethel. And in that moment, God threw his hip out of socket. And in throwing his hip out of socket, here's what God did. God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. From a twister and a supplanter to the word Israel, which means a prince of God who has power with men. This twister and supplanter who always tried to have power with men, now because he was broken and surrendered, now he really does have power with men. And he has power with God. The principle of Jacob's life is we have to be crippled to be crowned. God has to sometimes cripple us to crown us so that he can change us at the very core of who we are. The Exodus. Now the Exodus is recorded in the story of the Hebrew children. It's recorded in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. It is an account of God taking his covenant people, whom he had made a covenant with Abraham, and God takes his covenant people and he moves them out of bondage and into victory. God is taking them along. Now just write down by the Exodus, Deuteronomy 6.3. Deuteronomy 6.3 is one of the great verses in the book of Deuteronomy. It says, He brought us out so that He might bring us in. He brought us out so that He might bring us in. Listen, God did not save you and bring you out of your trespasses and sin for you to die in the wilderness. God brought you out so he could take you to the promised land. And if you want to get a, a picture, and most of you probably know this, Egypt is your old life before Christ. The wilderness is the carnal life, and the promised land is the fullness of life. And millions of the people of God died in the wilderness because they didn't have faith. They weren't willing to go through the process. They weren't willing to seek after God. They forgot quickly about what God had done for them, and they began to worship the golden calf. And they whined and they murmured. That's why I know that they were Baptist. And a whole generation had to die off so that a new generation could come up and say, you know what, we've dug all the graves we're going to dig. We, if I have to die fighting in the promised land, I'd rather die fighting in the promised land than eating Bubba's dust walking in circles. I don't want to do that anymore. And so they had to get hungry. They had to get a desire and a passion that when God said, now it's time to get up and go, they said, we're going. We're going to do what you want us to do. And they point us to the path that God takes us on. J. Sidlow Baxter, who's a great writer and preacher of another era, said, It is one thing to cross the Red Sea out of Egypt as the redeemed of the Lord. 
It is a very different thing to cross the Jordan into the land of promise and possess the covenant inheritance and its fullness of blessing. You see, to get out of Egypt, that's justification. But to get into the promised land, that's sanctified living. That's victorious living. The next example is Moses. Moses went through a process that began when he was delivered as a child. His basket's floating. Pharaoh's daughter finds him, and he becomes favored in Pharaoh's court. And Pharaoh trains Moses. Now get this. I love the way God works. God had the devil pay for Moses' education. You ever thought about that? God had the devil play for Moses' education so that when Moses had to lead millions of people, he had been trained in the house of Pharaoh and the most powerful leader in the world at that time. Pharaoh had trained and educated Moses, and he knew how to do things. But for him to be a godly leader, God had to send Moses to the backside of the desert for 40 years. He got his Ph.D. in Egypt. He got his be-nothing degree in the desert. Took him 40 years. Sounds like my education. Took me 40 years, you know. So that when he came back, he could be somebody. Now, here's a principle to understand. And, and I had not thought about this. I was talking to Warren Wiersbe yesterday, and, and I had not thought about this, and he mentioned it. He said, notice, notice in the history of the Old Testament that God's people have always rejected when the person comes first and accepted when they come second. For instance, Moses came, he tried to deliver them. They rejected him. He went to the desert, he came back, they accepted him. The prophets, Jesus came. The first time, what did they do? They rejected him. When he comes back the second time, they'll know who he is. See, Moses went through this process, and it was a process that got him in a position of God pruning off dead wood and branches so that he could bear fruit and much fruit and more fruit, so that he would have a spirit of cooperation so that God could operate through his life. That's true through all of those. Now, let's look at the New Testament patterns. Now, we mentioned at the beginning about the second blessing or second work of grace. And I want to ask you to turn to Acts 19. Acts 19 in verse 2 is one of the proof texts, if you will, because there's a serious error to avoid here. It's one of the proof texts, if you will, that people use to say it's two different events. Acts 19 and verse 2. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, how many of you have the word when or since in your Bible? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, when you believed or since you believed. That word is not in the original languages. It is added by the translators of English Bibles. That's why it's in italics in your Bible probably. 
It's added by translators to make the verse more readable. But we've had whole denominations and movements built on a word added by English translators than on the text out of the Greek New Testament. So the verse literally says, did you receive the Holy Spirit believing? In other words, did you get it? Have you believed is literally what he's asking them. Now, what happens when you chase a word, and we'll give you a little hermeneutics lesson here. It's, he's not related to Herman Munster on the Munsters. Hermeneutics is a different guy. I'm going to give you a little hermeneutics lesson, lesson here. Be careful of the sin of chasing shadows and missing substance. When you read your Bible, be careful of the sin of chasing shadows and missing substance. Whole arguments have been built around a word that's not actually there. Now, if by Acts 19.2, you would write Ephesians 1.13 and 14. Because Ephesians 1.13.14, don't turn there, just write, it, just write it down, tells us that the Spirit comes into our lives at the moment of salvation. Here's the context of this verse. These men knew there was a Holy Spirit because they were disciples of John. And John had said that the Spirit was coming. So they knew there was a Holy Spirit. What they did not know was that the Spirit had already come at Pentecost. They, they weren't denying the existence of the Holy Spirit. They just didn't know that the Spirit had come. They were maybe like Apollos. He, he didn't fully understand what Christ had done because he hadn't heard about it all. And so Paul is bringing them in and he's asking these questions because he's trying to find out. Literally, this is the way Acts 19.10 reads. We did not even hear whether the Holy Spirit was given, that is, at the time of our baptism. We didn't know. You remember some of the disciples were baptized in John's baptism. And so they had to be baptized into the baptism of Christ. And so we didn't know that that had happened. The key to this is that there are people who insist that the giving of the Spirit, and this is all about intimacy with God because if you don't understand what the Holy Spirit is doing in you right now, you can't become intimate with Him that the Holy Spirit and the giving of the Holy Spirit and the receiving of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit and the fullness of the Holy Spirit, whatever term you want to use, is a subsequent post-salvation second blessing experience. And I do not believe the Bible teaches that. I believe the Bible teaches me that when I got Jesus, I got everything of the Spirit. Now, the Spirit didn't get everything of me. And that's why there's a sanctification process. But I got everything God had for me. You know, God didn't move in and say, okay, you know, I'm going to fill his arm, so my arm's going to get filled. But this arm over here, this arm's not going to be filled. It's just going to hang down here defeated. And when he's lived long enough, been good enough, done enough things, I may put him in a meeting one day, and this arm's going to get it. But not his feet yet. 
No, God doesn't work in increments. God works in wholes. God works with people, and He works with a whole person. So let me give you the problem with this logic. First of all, it does not take into account the transitional nature of the book of Acts. Now remember, when we studied the Acts a long time ago, Acts is not a book of doctrine. No sound theologian since the days of the Reformation and in the times of the church fathers in the first and second century, no sound theologian from Augustine all the way through to today to the people who teach sound biblical theology in seminaries, no sound theologian builds theology and doctrine out of the book of Acts. None do. The only people who build doctrine out of the book of Acts are people who don't look at the epistles to see what it says. The epistles are the teaching books. Acts is a historical book that tells us how the early church got started, but it is not a doctrinal book because doctrine was being formulated. Paul was called to write these books to formulate doctrine. Much of the phenomena of Acts is limited to the book of Acts. Much of what you see in Acts, you don't read in the church at Rome. You don't read in the church at Galatia. You don't read in the church at Ephesus. And yet they're still talking about the Spirit, and they're still talking about fullness, and still talking about power, and talking about the full armor of God. Why? Because the church was growing. It was being birthed, and it was growing, and it was developing. So it doesn't take into account the transitional nature of the book of Acts. Secondly, it is faulty because it commits, and this is a long, this is heady stuff, all right? I know, that, I know I'm doing this. It's faulty because it commits comparative scriptural error. In other words, you, you build doctrine by comparing Scripture with Scripture, not by just taking the Scriptures that say what you want to say. And so let me give you some references here. Other verses, the, these are other verses that explicitly teach that you receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of your salvation. And it's not limited to these. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. Ephesians 1, 13. Romans 8 and Jude 19 all say that if you don't have the Spirit, you're not saved. So if I've got to wait for God to do something later on in my life so I get the Spirit, then I'm really not saved. Not according to the Word of God. So when you compare Scripture with Scripture and you build, you never build doctrine on isolated texts. You never build doctrine out of context. And you never build doctrine without looking what every verse says when you're trying to look at that doctrine. Third thing is it assumes. One of the things, it says, well, the disciples. And so you go back to 19. He's speaking to disciples. It assumes that disciples means Christian. Now let me ask you, was Judas a Christian? Yes or no? Boy, y'all are a little uncertain about that. Was Judas a Christian? But he was a disciple. Luke chapter 14 says that Jesus turned around and said, If any man follows me, he must love me more than his father, mother, brother, sister. Yes, even his own life also. And the next verse says, And many followed him no more. The word disciple simply means a learner or a follower. And there are followers 
and learners who are not Christians. And so what Paul is doing is he's trying to find out where these people are. The disciples, the Pharisees had disciples. Jesus had disciples. But it just simply means a learner. John 6, 66 says, As a result of this, many of his disciples, speaking of Jesus, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Paul, when he comes to this group of people in Acts 19, he's not assuming that they're Christians. And he's asking a question to determine their spiritual status. Now, there should be a quote in your notes. Is there by David Williams? Okay, read along with me. His, Paul's criteria for what, was distinguished, for what distinguished the Christian is significant. So too is the way in which his question is framed. It implies that the Holy Spirit is received at a definite point in time and that that time is the moment of initial belief. That's the aorist participle in the, in the uh, verse. The same thought is expressed, for example, in Ephesians 1.13. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promise of the Spirit. Acts 11.17. No space of time is envisioned between the two events nor is a possibility entertained of believing without also receiving the seal of the Spirit. No possibility is entertained of believing without receiving the seal of the Spirit. Paul, that, that, that thought never even hit Paul's radar screen. John MacArthur says, Paul's next question, into what then were you baptized, further clarifies their status they responded into John's baptism, showing that they were disciples of John the Baptist, that Paul would encounter followers of John the Baptist nearly a quarter of a century after his death is not unusual. J.B. Lightfoot notes that such groups still existed in the second century. Had these 12 already believed in Jesus Christ, they would have been baptized into his name. Now let me give you one more doctrinal truth that you need to grasp. And you, so you need to write it down, okay? This is, this is an important one when you're studying the Bible. And if you want to go deeper with God, it is not sound biblical exegesis. I'll spell that for you. It is not sound biblical exegesis. E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. -E -E it is not sound biblical exegesis to see a truth in the Bible and then imagine that you see it everywhere else. That's not sound doctrine. That makes sense? It's not sound doctrine to see a truth and then imagine or try to read it into everything else you see. Let the Word speak for itself. Just because you see it one place doesn't mean that it's that way everywhere. It may be one portion of the message that God is revealing to us. So there's a truth to embrace, B. There's a truth to embrace, and I think I mentioned several years ago about a book that G. Campbell Morgan wrote, which I think is the best book he wrote, called The Crisis of the Christ. And in that book, G. Campbell Morgan deals with the seven pivotal events in the life of Christ. His birth, his baptism, his temptation, his transfiguration, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. And he looks at those crisis events, those seven events, as benchmarks by which 
things began to change in the life and ministry of Christ. Not that he suddenly became God. He was always God. But there was a process that propelled him into greater ministry. His birth was one thing. His baptism, he left the carpenter shop and he began to do ministry. When opposition came, things changed. The cross was a crisis point where a different aspect of the revelation of God came into play. The resurrection was another one. The ascension was another one. They propelled him into greater ministry. And Morgan says in this book that one reason why we have crisis experiences in our lives is to propel us to desire God. To propel us, to push us so that we will desire God. I learned a new phrase this week. And of all people, I learned it from the Walt Disney people. But let me give you a good definition for a crisis and chew on this one for a while. It is a moment in time that becomes a timeless moment. It's a moment in time that becomes a timeless moment. In other words, you go back and you say, it was there that God got my attention. I remember when I knelt there. I remember when I talked to that person. I remember that disciple now. I remember that youth camp. I remember that vacation Bible school. I remember that event. I remember that moment. And that moment in time becomes a timeless moment. Now, what we ought to pray for is that God gives us some moments that become timeless to us, that when they happen, we never get over them. We never get over them. Uh, I, I can remember some of those in my life. I, I'll give you a secular example. I can remember the first time we took Aaron and Haley to Disney World. And I can remember walking through, how, how old were they? What? Three and five. And I can remember, I think we drove. Oh, no, we flew that time. We drove the other time. But I can remember walking through the gates, and everything there is planned for a reason. So you never see, by the way, if you ever walk on Disney property, you never see the castle until you get past the train station. It's designed that way. So there's a moment, there's just a moment when you see it for the first time. And I mean, I couldn't have orchestrated this any better if I'd have paid all the money in the world. We walk right past the train station, and there's Minnie Mouse standing right there. And my girls just went, And I want to tell you, I can still picture that moment. I can close my eyes right now, and I can tell you what I felt and what I sensed in that moment. It was a wonderful moment. I, as long as God gives me memory, I'll remember that moment. It was a special moment. It was a fun moment. And it was one of those moments that you go, you know, who cares what this cost? We just had a moment. You know, Roger Brigland wrote a book, In Search of a Lovely Moment. And my life is marked in every way by moments. Moments when God just overwhelmed me. Moments when God said, I'm not going to let you stay at this level any longer. I'm a, and, and I want to tell you, some of those moments 
are timeless to me, but at the moment I felt like I was being sucked through a keyhole. But God was doing something timeless in my life that would last beyond the clock and the notation in the journal. He was doing something timeless. So I want to mention three that are given to us in Morgan's book that may help us to kind of see how God did this. First of all was his baptism. Mark chapter 1 and verse 9 says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Do you, can you go back and remember the moment when the light bulb went off in your head and you realized for the first time, God loves me? Do you remember that? That's a great moment, wasn't it? Hello? Was that a great moment? The first time you realized, God loves me. Can you imagine what it meant to Jesus at age 30, knowing what he had left, to go into those waters as an example to us, and to come out and the Spirit to descend like a dove, and to come over him, and for him to hear the voice of his heavenly Father saying, Son, I'm pleased with you. There are people that would die for their parent to say, I'm pleased with you. I'm proud of you. And God the Father said to God the Son, I'm pleased with you. I want to tell you something, folks. If I know God's pleased with me, I can tackle anything. I can't. If I just know God's pleased with where I'm going. Now, if I'm not sure about that, I'll, I'll cower down and I'll be fearful. But if I know God's pleased with me, uh, you know, I'll attack hell with a water pistol and jack it up and change the tires on it. If I know he's pleased... Then there's Calvary and Pentecost, and I want to mention those two together because they really are inseparable. You cannot separate Calvary from Pentecost, although they're separated by seven weeks. It's like justification and sanctification. It's two sides of the same coin. At Calvary, we came out of sin. At Pentecost, we came into life in the Spirit. At Calvary, we found pardon. At Pentecost, we found power. At Calvary, we discovered what God did for us. And at Pentecost, we discovered God in us. At Calvary, we found condemnation for sin. But at Pentecost, we found sanctification. At Calvary, we were saved from hell. But at Pentecost, we were saved from the power of sin. At Calvary, we found conversion, but at Pentecost, we found consecration. There's an old Methodist preacher who said one time, thousands of Christians have been to Calvary who have never gone to Pentecost. And thus, there's no intimacy. There's no power. There's no joy. There's no fullness of life because, oh, I've been to the cross. I've been saved, but I've never embraced what God did for me when he gave me the Holy Spirit. 
and I think the greatest tragedy when God writes the pages of Southern Baptist history will be that for so long, in many ways, we resisted the Holy Spirit because we were scared of Him. Now, folks, I don't have to be scared of God or of what God wants to do in my life because there's only one thing God wants to do in my life. He wants the best for me. God just wants the best for me. He doesn't want me to settle for second best. If you being evil give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give to those who ask? I mean, God's good all the time and all the time. God is good. We ought to try that again. God's good and all the time. Why? Because He loves us. And he wants to be intimate with us. He wants to have an intimate relationship with us. And so I want to take you to Romans. Uh, let me just ask you to turn to 1 Thessalonians. And let me read Romans chapter 12 while you're doing that. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The word transformed in Romans is the same word from which we get our word metamorphosis. It's a radical transformation. It's a whole new look, a whole new way of life. You come out of the cocoon and all of a sudden you're a beautiful butterfly. The renewing of the mind is a choice, but it's an easy choice when you've gone through transformation. God's done this so that we wouldn't be conformed, but that we would live transformed lives. Now, by 1 Thessalonians 5.23, or in your notes, let me ask you to write divine enablement. Like any truth of Scripture, there are two sides to a coin. There are two sides to this. There is divine enablement, and there's human responsibility. Now, 1 Thessalonians 5.23 gives us divine enablement. Now may the God of peace Himself. Guess who's sanctifying you? The God Himself is sanctifying you entirely. It's all of God. May the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. Not partial, not in quadrants, but entirely. This is Paul's prayer for believers. By the way, it's a good prayer to pray for the church. May the God of peace sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word sanctify in verse 23 is an aorist tense word and an aorist tense word always means a once for all completed act. Anytime you hear somebody say it's an heiress tense, it means it's a once for all completed act. So may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. That means that God began a process that he's not going to finish. It started, it's completed. In his eyes, it's already done. What am I supposed to do? I'm glad you asked. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. In 2 Corinthians 7, 1, we find human responsibilities. Human responsibility. How do I get close to God? How do I become intimate with God? 2 Corinthians 
chapter 7 and verse 1. Now, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, may God himself sanctify you entirely, but in 2 Corinthians 7.1, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That sounds like it's all your responsibility. It is. It's all God and it's all you. It's all of you giving yourself to all of God. And all of you putting yourself in a position so that God can do in you what He wants to do in you and wills to do in you, but you want to cooperate with Him. See, I don't want to be fighting God in this sanctification process. I want to be cooperating with Him. I don't want to be resisting God. I want to be cooperating with Him. He puts in me the desire, by the way, to will and to do, doesn't He? Let us cleanse ourselves. So I'm not supposed to sit down in church or sit down at home and go, all right, Lord, if you want me to be pure and if you want me to holy and if you want me to be intimate with you, then start to work. He already has. He just wants to know if you're going to clean yourself of all defilement so that you can perfect holiness in the fear of God. One more thing. Now, don't get mad at me. Derek Johnson is writing this book on the 21 things he learned from the mouse that he uses for the master. Of course, one of my things has always been, if people will be that committed to excellence for a mouse, why won't the church be committed to excellence for the King of kings and Lord of lords? Why do we ever make excuses about what we can't do and won't do when people give their lives for a mouse and we have the Lord of glory? Number 21 in the principles is this, the ultimate question. Now let me set up the ultimate question for you. When Walt Disney decided that he wanted to build Disneyland, and by the way, those of you who are teachers, bear with me. Don't fall asleep on me now. Repetition is good for you, okay? When Walt Disney decided he wanted to build Disneyland, he had all the dirt, he had the land, and they asked him, who did he want to build it? Who did he want to engineer it? He said, I don't know his name, but I know, I know who he is, and I, I want to get him. And they said, well, who do you want? He said, I want the guy that rebuilt the United States Navy after December 7th, 1941. Because if you'll remember, those of us that are old enough to remember this, and those of us that are old enough to have had parents who reminded us of this, reminded us of our heritage and the price that was paid for our freedom. That's a sidetrack. I won't chase that dog any longer. But we lost our Navy in the Pacific on December 7th. It was decimated. The Japanese could have run us over. I mean, we could all be eating sushi tonight. You know, I mean, it, they could just, it just, we just could have been run over. But there was one man, and in one year, he rebuilt the entire United States fleet and had us up to full capacity by a year after December 7th, 1941. And from that date on, we never lost another battle, 
and we took island after island after island until we won the war. Walt Disney said, I want that guy. And they found him. He was a retired admiral, had just retired from the Navy. He was 50 years old. He built Disneyland for $20 million. Ten years, 20 years later, Walt Disney wanted to build Disney World. And this retired admiral, who is now 70, built Disney World, and the cost was $100 million. Ten years later, they wanted to build Epcot. The cost of Epcot was $1 billion. Now, I set all that up to say, here's a guy who's 50, 70, and 80 who didn't quit. He just kept doing something. He had projects that he believed in. He had things he believed in. But let me go back now. When they opened up the Pirates of the Caribbean, and you know they have a movie about that now. And when they opened up the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, and the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland is different than the world in Disney World. It's got a couple of more falls, and it's got a little more energy to it. But when they opened it up, Walt went in, and Walt Disney was the kind of guy who would never say, okay, it's fine, let's open it up. There's some things I don't like, but let's not worry about it. Walt Disney would say at the last moment, we're not going to do that. It's not excellent, which is different from the way most churches think. And so he said, they said, what's wrong? He said, we don't have lightning bugs. And there, anybody that's been to Louisiana Bayou knows that there are lightning bugs in the Louisiana Bayou, and we don't have any lightning bugs in the Pirates of the Caribbean. How can we have a Louisiana Bayou scene and we don't have any lightning bugs? And they said, well, what kind of bugs do you want? Do you want you know, fiber optic? Do you want little bitty bulbs? I mean, what kind of things do you want? Guys, help me if I miss a point here. Uh, and he said, I don't know, but the admiral will know. Call him. They called the admiral, and they said, Walt will not let us open this ride. It's supposed to open, and, you know, and he won't let us open this ride, and we've got to get this ride open, and he wants lightning bugs. The admiral didn't say, well, how much is my budget? He did not say, how many people are going to help me? He didn't say, does he want fiber optic lightning bugs, or does he want little uh, incandescent bulbs? Does he want them to move? Does he want them to stay there? He didn't say anything. The admiral asked one question, when? And they said, by tomorrow. And the admiral said, okay, we'll get started. You see, folks, I think the ultimate question of Disney is also the ultimate question of God tonight. We say we want to be spiritual. We say we want to be spirit-filled. We say we want to be intimate with God. We say we want to walk in power. And I think God is asking us a question. When? You going to do it now? You going to wait a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now? When, when are you going to do it? If today is the day of salvation, today is also the day for us to begin to get serious about sanctification. So I want us to sing, and I want us to worship the Lord for a while. And as we do, these altars are open. You can come, and you can pray and seek the Lord. But we're going to sing and worship the God who has justified us, who is in the process of...